Hello. Here we are today with doctors Marlena Feel and Ed O'Connor. Doctor? Doctor? doctor. Hello, doctors. Hi there. <laughs> Great to be with you. <laughs> Welcome. Yeah, we're super excited to have this conversation with you today. But before we dive in, I'd like to tell our listeners a little bit about the two of you. Marlena Feel, PhD, is a globally recognized author, scholar, and speaker. She is a spiritual seeker whose work explores the depths of who we are and what's possible in our lives. Her significant body of publications on the topic, coupled with her own raw identity-changing experiences, makes her uniquely qualified to write about personal transformational change. Before launching into the world of literary nonfiction, she enjoyed an active career of professional and academic teaching, consulting, and training. She has served as a senior editor of two international journals. Marlena holds a PhD in strategic management from the University of Illinois and has taught on the faculties of New York University and the University of Colorado. And dear listeners, I have to tell you, her bio is much, much longer with lots of accolades, and you can check that out at marlenafeel.com. Ed O'Connor, PhD, is also a recognized author, scholar, speaker, and spiritual seeker. In his earlier career, he was a professor of management and health administration at the University of Colorado, Denver, and a partner of a national consulting speaking organization. Ed holds an MBA from the Harvard Business School and a PhD from the University of Akron. He has previously served on business and psychology faculties at the universities of Georgia, Tennessee, and Texas, as well as the Georgia University, I'm sorry, Georgia Institute of Technology. His prior work focused on physician hospital relations, change management, visionary strategic leadership, conflict resolution, and entrepreneurship, which you're using a lot of those skills and everything you're doing now, Ed. <laughs> Ed is currently the primary research arm for literary nonfiction and fiction writing with Marlena. Welcome. Wow, those sound like impressive <laughs> people. I'm it's, sitting it's, here grinning. It sounds like we're going to talk about something really boring. <laughs> Does it though? No. Like, For-profit insurance companies. Let's go. <laughs> right. Who's first? Yeah. You know what? I, I And I cut so much out of your bios. You guys have done so much. And now here, we're going to talk about a couple things. We're going to talk about your soon-to-be-released fiction novel called, which is going to be available November 2nd. But before we go there, I want to take our readers on a journey because Marlena wrote a memoir released last year with Mango Press. And I kind of want to start there if we can. The memoir is called Nothing Bad Between Us, A Mennonite Missionary's Daughter Finds Healing in Her Brokenness. The interesting thing about this, dear listeners, is that Marlena's memoir is the true story of her life growing up, a Mennonite missionary's daughter in Paraguay, and called is the mostly true story fictionalized into a novel about about your dad, Dr. Dr. John Schmidt. So these books are really related. And if you read one, you're definitely going to want to read the other, right? It's like they tell both sides of the story. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Um, the, the memoir is a story, of, a coming of age story of a young rebellious girl who I grew up on a leprosy compound in Paraguay. And my father was this hero doctor who mm -hmm. revolutionized how leprosy is treated on the planet today. And so I kind of worshipped him, but he was also a brutal disciplinarian, and he beat me um, 
brutally. And so I also wanted to get away from him. And mm-hmm. there was those two forces kind of duking it out inside of me. That's the surface level of the memoir. Um, at a deeper level... If I could it, say something at that point in terms of the duking it out, hmm. Arlena's personality resembles uh, her father's personality down to the bottom level details that yeah. are behind. <laughs> and so when we're duking it out, these mm-hmm. are two strong forces coming right. at each other. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't pretty at no. all. But the, the important thing for me is that the memoir is a story of how we reconciled. It's a story of forgiveness and a story of reconciliation. And that, for me, is the really important part of that of that book. And the, yeah, well, the I, I, I'm gonna I'm not gonna let you go there yet because I want to <laughs> I want to take our listeners on a little bit of a journey, if you don't mind, because I've read both books, and the memoir is just incredible. This this life that you lived, and I want to tell our listeners now how many kids were in your family and how old were you when your family moved to Paraguay. So there are eight of us. Um, my eight kids. It's <laughs> crazy. That's awesome. Yeah. Good Mennonite family. Eight right. Yeah. Kids, uh, lots of procreation. Um, my father actually was in Paraguay before he was married. Um, so his mm-hmm. first trip to Paraguay was 1941, which is when the novel begins. But um, they went back to Paraguay to found a leprosy compound in 1951, which is the year I was born. So I was four months old. There were five of us at the time. Uh, seven, within seven years, they had five of us kids. So we were all between seven eight. years. Your yeah. mom was busy, busy, busy. And she was working as a nurse, too. Yeah, she was a nurse. Um, and that's when he took us all down there to start the leprosy work in Paraguay. It's incredible. And like the conditions that you lived in, it's not like, you know, you had a house, a big house to live in. You had to build the house while you were, your, your father was treating these patients. Your mom had a new baby and new babies on the way. And like, like just the conditions are incredible. It's not like it was um, established in any way. Right. It was pretty right. right. There was off the grid. Yeah. Yeah. And, and where in, where in Paraguay was that? So the leprosy compound was 50 miles east of Asuncion, the capital city. Okay. Uh, at the kilometer 81 marker, which is why the leprosy station was actually called kilometer 81. Okay. You know, all of us, I think, you know, myself for mm-hmm. sure, and I would imagine most people who are unfamiliar with leprosy just think, oh my gosh, you know, you hide these people away on an island away from everyone else so we don't all get it, right? It's like sort of a scary thing. But your father, like, he had so much compassion, which is really juxtaposed to how he was to his children and his family. I mean, I know he loved you, but he was so hard and mean and brutal, as you said, but let he had so much compassion for these people and new ideas of how he wanted to treat them with humanity and, and respect and dignity. Yes, yes. He was driven <laughs> and he was a visionary and he was a revolutionary. And yes, with compassion. Um, it was not understood at all what that disease was or how it spread. When and you he- lived with them, like yeah. alongside them, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. His, his firm belief was that 
leprosy patients should be able to stay with their families in their homes. And at that time, all around the world, leprosy patients were locked up. Mm. And so that is what he has been credited as being the revolutionary pioneer who began treating leprosy patients in their homes, which is now how it's done around the world. And they were you not know, particularly, the leprosy patients were not particularly open to this treatment. They mm-hmm. were hiding in very remote areas so that the government would not find them and lock them up. Right. And yeah, so they were he was not welcomed. Right. And right. He had to build trust, which took several mm-hmm. years. Yeah. It's kind of interesting because, you know, this last year of COVID, a lot of people were separated from their families when they were sick. And they were, you know, and people who were in, in reti- old folks' homes weren't allowed to see their, their children. And loneliness is, I think, one of the worst things that can happen to your psyche. He knew it's, that. It's so interesting that you go there, Jennifer. I'm. We're just now writing an article about COVID-19 and leprosy in 1951. And there are so many similarities. Um, Being isolated is one of them. The stigma associated with certain people around the issue of COVID is another. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, it's a fascinating and very sad connection. It really is. Yeah, great disagreement about what to do about it, what causes it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right, we know so little, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a really good idea to write that article. I'm interested in reading it. Uh, I imagine we'll be able to get to it at your website too. Yes. Absolutely. So there's there's this one picture I have in my mind, and forgive me if I use the wrong term here, but when you were a kid, you were all barefoot a lot of the time. And was it hookworms that you had yeah. often? Hookworms. Can can you just tell our readers about this scene? Like this book has so many scenes that you're just like, oh my god. Tell us about the hookworms and how they were a part of your life as a child. <laughs> well, yeah. Like, uh, my, my parents were frugal, frugal Mennonites who believed that if the people around us didn't have um, extra pairs of shoes or clothing, that we shouldn't have that either. Um, so we did run barefooted on the station pretty much all the time, except for Sunday Sunday best when we did have some shoes. Mm. Um, and so we did have hookworm and the the treatment for hookworm at the time was basically um, I'm trying to think what it is. It's it's I write about it in the memoir, but I forget what it is. It's some something as poisonous, poisonous as drinking gasoline or darn close to yeah, it. Yeah, it's basically poison and today that's no longer the treatment, but at the time it was. Oh my gosh. And so yeah, it's pretty horrific. And if that I, didn't do it. Yeah, if that hurt. didn't do it, what would? Yeah, well, a bit of digging, wasn't there? Oh, that's the pinworm. Bookworms, pinworms. She had different. It all. That's a different worm. Yeah. You got any tapeworms? <laughs> you got it. The conditions, like that's the thing about you know living in that in that part of the world. The conditions were so different, and not not just Paraguay, but where you were specifically, because there was just it was so rural. Um, I think that's part of what makes it, you know, such an incredible story. But also, you know, it really is the story about reconciliation and forgiveness. And Marlena, you were finding yourself. You were this young, strong-headed, you know, adventurous woman eventually. But even as a child, you were just strong-headed. And you constantly, you know, butted heads with your dad. But you found your way. And you found your way back to him. Yeah. What has been very... um 
validating and and I, and something that means a lot to me is that readers of the memoir have just consistently said I I see so many pieces of my life in this story mm-hmm. and that to me is is just a wonderful message because the setting is so different and yeah. you see in Paraguay and Mennonite and yeah. how does this have anything to do with me and I've just it's been really wonderful to hear from readers that you know we all we all want to be forgiven and we all want to reconcile really deep down i think we all want to reconcile with those whom we love and and that's the that's the universal theme and that's mm-hmm. the distinctive part of this memoir versus many other memoirs uh, at least as i read memoirs they often talk about the bad things that have happened and never reach any peaceful reconciliation among the parties. And it's Marlena's path to reconciliation that brings tears to my eyes. Mm. When did you know that you needed to tell this story? Hmm. Well, that's a great question. (laughs) I I, uh, did a lot of journaling and writing just for myself. And at some point, Ed, um, I read out loud to him something I had written. Actually, it's the, it's now the first scene in the memoir about standing in front of the Mennonite church and basically being banned from participating in the church because of my sinful activities. And I read it out loud to him, and he's sitting across the living room from me, and, and he starts to cry. And he says, you have to share this story. Wow. And it kind of... Mm went from there. Um, Mm. It was not my initial intent. Wow. That's beautiful. I think a lot of memoirs start that way. You know, we we get so much healing in in telling our stories, but also, like you said, in hearing someone else's stories, because, you know, it makes us feel less alone. I'm not the only one who's experienced something like this, right? And I imagine your listeners already know this, but I can't wait for Jennifer's memoir to come out. (laughs) Oh, yes. Speaking of, yeah, well, yeah. Reconciliation for sure. My father and I butted heads as well. And parasites. And parasites. (laughs) Yeah, we had parasites too, but we weren't in Paraguay. Dirty water will do that to you. Yes. I just, you know, and and I can really relate to that. You know, you came to understand and love and really respect your father, which... I think it's a good segue into this next book, this this novel, which I've also read, dear listener. It's called Called, and it's going to be available on November 2nd. Talk to us about the impetus for writing a fictionalized version of Dr. John Schmidt. Well, in the first place, it's a story worth telling. Mm-hmm. It, uh, mm-hmm. it provides inspiration to the reader, uh, rather like Terry Jones in American Marriage. Uh, I think at least it's very similar. Uh, it publicizes the extraordinary lives of two visionary leaders who over six decades delivered contributions uh, in the face of incredible obstacles, insurmountable barriers. For I think both Marlena and I, John Schmidt, uh, Marlena's father, Dr. John, is a real-life Frodo Baggins, Hmm. pushing forward to do impossible, just as Frodo does in Tolkien's trilogy. It's also an entertaining story. It's an inspirational story. I was excited to be able to dig into their lives and learn about my in-laws in ways I never understood prior to the research. And And I think it's well worth sharing. 
brings Ed, me to you, tears. What'd you say? I'm sorry. It brings me to tears. There's, oh, that's awesome. They say like, if you can bring yourself to tears, you're, you, you've got it, right? If you can make yourself emotional, then the reader will definitely feel that emotion. Uh-huh. Um, I'd like to, well, two things. Uh, I, I did want to ask you, Ed, about the research process, because for you, I mean, you're a co-author in this book about a man who, you know, you've met and heard so much about, who's basically created this woman whom you're in love with, <laughs> but you were really behind, you know, the research. And I, I wonder, is that because that's your expertise or did it make more sense for you being separated from the story to be the one really fleshing out those details and getting into the research? It's an interesting question, and I'm not sure I know the answer to it. Uh, Marlene and I have had a long history of long history. We've been together for 30 years, and for 25 of those years, we've worked together, Mm -hmm. Uh, written together, together, had a consulting Mm -hmm. business together, a speaking business together. And the, 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 the way we work together has gone through transitions during that 25 year period of time. In the earliest part of it, Marlena is an extraordinary researcher, and she was creating materials, ways of thinking um, mm. that were new and revolutionary, revolutionary to the academic world. And I was busy engaged in turning those into practical possibilities and taking them out on the road to our clients, Consult- mm. consulting business, speaking business, etc. So we played that role together. When we began this side, Marlena was writing her memoir. And so she was deeply engaged in that process. And as we started to dig into the research that you ask about, it was just natural for me to pick up that piece. Mm. Uh, I don't know that it was particularly because of my expertise, but my time was available. And the more I dug into it, the more I wanted to dig into it. So it's not a burdensome task in any way whatsoever. Yeah. There are 740 written sources that we have made available to our readers. They will be on the, on the website. So Mm -hmm. this is. uh, And that says nothing about all the sources we went through that are not counted in those 740. Yeah. Wow. Well, and, and there is a website for, it's called a novel.com. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And, and on there, um, well, there's a book trailer that people can check out. We'll, we'll have a link to it in our notes on the premise. And there's photographs, actual photographs of, you know, your parents' time in Paraguay. And it's so fascinating to me to read historical fiction like this because, you know, it's all based on real people. Of course, you weren't there. So the conversations you've made up as best you can. But you've gotten a lot of great feedback from family members and people who knew the Schmitz, right? Right, right. Yeah, so we did we did fictionalize it, um, but it is an absolutely true and accurate representation of John and Clara's life and their work. And we fictionalized it because, uh, I mean, uh, number one, we, we want a good story. We want it to, <laughs> to be something the general public is interested in. John and Clara wrote a lot and a lot was written about them. And so in medical circles and in Mennonite circles, um, their story is is pretty familiar, but we mm. wanted to write it in a way where we could take it out to a more general public. Plus it's it spans six decades. Yeah. Epic, yeah. <laughs> an epic story of romance, um, it, political intrigue, adventure, 
and to to put six decades into a book, we had to compress mm -hmm. some of the events and we had to roll a number of characters into a single character mm. just to make it more readable. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that character that you rolled them into is wonderful. She's she's such a, a wonderful character. And I think what I appreciated most about her is the history and you know her side of the story, which she's an Argentinian woman. And I learned so much. Um, and that's you know the beauty of historical fiction, right? Is we actually get to learn about this world we live in yeah. while being taken on this wonderful romantic journey. So yeah. well done. And our listeners will have to... Um to read the book, but her name, this woman's name is Anastasia. Um, yes. Yeah, she's beautiful. I like to call her Anna. Yes. I feel close to her because I've read her story. <laughs> ah. <laughs> um, so Ed mentioned something a little bit earlier, and I'd like to just tell our, our listeners, the San Diego Writers Festival is going to be happening this Saturday, the 31st. And Marlena and Ed are our keynote sponsors for Tayari Jones' book, An American Marriage. In fact, you'll be introducing her this Saturday. So yes. it was a, a really beautiful fit, um, I think. And it, thank you very much for your sponsorship of the San Diego Writers' Festival. As our listeners know, it's a free writers' festival. We really really want to keep it free and without our sponsors like Marlena and Ed, it wouldn't be possible. But, you know, when you read An American Marriage, um, what were your thoughts on, on the book? I, I just read it again for the second time, by the way. So I'm just curious, Ed, you mentioned it earlier. Tell me more about, you know, what you thought of that book and why you're so proud to be the yeah. sponsor. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'll say a few words and then I'm sure Ed will want to add something. Uh, when we first agreed to be sponsors, it was because of you, Jennifer, and your work with the festival. But after reading Tayari Jones's book, An American Marriage, um, I, I actually have goosebumps right now as I'm speaking because it, it, uh, it, it, it truly made us proud mm. to be her sponsors because her story while very, very different, has some striking similarities to yes. our novel. Mm. It, it's this uh, romance and adventure and this beautiful story, but underneath it all is a very serious social commentary. Yes. And mm. it, it is eerily similar to what we're doing with the novel, even though on the surface, the stories are very, very different. Yeah, it's not hard to understand why both uh, President Obama, former President Obama, and Oprah, Oprah yeah. <clears throat> recommend the book. Mm -hmm. and that's a pretty wonderful statement about that book. Yeah, to see the the environment we live in brought forth in front of us. Yeah, in an incredibly entertaining, compelling way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. remarkable. Yeah, you know, I I just finished reading it again for the second time and. While, you know, they talk about the book, it's about social injustice, this man is wrongfully imprisoned, and the book is about that, but it's really not. It's about this romance and about these people, and I think that's what's so well done about it, is nothing about it is hitting you over the head with a message. It's you get the preach. message. That's it's right. not preachy at all. That's and it's right. so important, you know, to yeah. to watch these people go through this experience and how they come out the other side is just... yeah. She did an incredible job. Um, really can't wait to read another book by her. Um, so we're looking forward to interviewing her and, and learning a little bit more about her process. But speaking of the writing process, I'd like to hear, I mean, I, I know that you've been working together for 
well, writing together for 25 years, but when I read a book like this that's written by two authors, I try to picture it. Like, what is your process? How do two yeah. people write one book? And who wins? <laughs> that's a good question. That's the way to ask the question. Uh, Chad hit right on the head there. Yeah, you really did, Chad. We, um, in general, the process goes like this. I write a an, an initial draft. Um, I pass it over to Ed, and he comes back with all kinds of critique and recommendations, and then we fight about it. <laughs> and we fight some more, and we fight some more, and we keep at it until we're both proud of the result. Wow. Uh, and so it's yeah. We're both we're both pretty intense people, and so these <laughs> you are yeah. These fight about it or real fight about it. Yeah. I mean, and, serious yeah. disagreements. And and fortunately, but our relationship is better as a result of it, and so is the so yeah. is the material. Yeah, so the book, and I just yeah. want to go back to your comment, Chad, because it very importantly, I think, um, what wins is the product, yes. and what wins is our relationship because in the end we don't stop duking it out until oh there's that word again <laughs> yeah. we don't stop uh, fighting about it until we're both really proud of the result and so that's mm. really what wins and by wow. then there's nothing else to fight about <laughs> <laughs> well and i don't know if we told our listener but you're you're a married couple too you're not just working together academically and writing but you, you know you're actually in love with each other so absolutely that so a, we met yeah. A whole nother element. Yeah. I actually kind of like the story of how you met. Um, I just you... want to say one more thing and then we'll go to how we met. If okay. You okay. Choose. Yeah. The project, this project and others in our past are very important to our relationship. Mm. I think many couples would have difficulty working together. Uh, I think I've got enough experience to know that that's true. But for us, if we don't have that core piece, yeah. Um, I don't know. Something meaningful that we can yeah. share and work toward is incredibly important for our relationship. I mean, when we go on vacation, then we talk about our work because it's what we want to do. It's not, mm -hmm. we don't know the difference between work and play. <laughs> we really don't. And so we're having fun and products come out the other end. Yeah. Sorry I interrupted you, Jennifer. No, that's awesome. I, I, that's awesome. And, I, you know, it takes special people to be able to do that. I mean, Chad and I have worked together for many years as well. And people always marvel at the fact that we can be in business together and, you know, also have a be a married couple. And it's true for us, too. You know, when we go on vacation, we go to dinner, and we find ourselves talking about work because we're excited about it. You know, that's what. Yes. And I think that does keep people closer together in a way because you have that commonality and you're working toward a common goal. Yeah. yeah. Yes, absolutely. So, so it's pretty cool. I, f I feel fortunate to be able to be in business with the person I, you know, I want to spend all my time with him. So it, work it works great. Yes. <laughs> so great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in how fact, it becomes a problem in and of itself because we do want to spend all our time together. Mm -hmm. And it becomes easy to not maintain the contacts we also want in the world outside, given we mm, tend to yeah. satisfy each other's needs. How long did it take you to write Called? Um, hmm. Five, it, six years of research. Yeah, five or six years of research. And basically, one year. Um, wow. It was, it, it was the year of COVID. Yes. It, mm. If we had not been locked up in our, basically locked up in our home, I don't think it would have 
come out so soon. I'm sure it wouldn't have happened as quickly. Wow. uh, Because we had all kinds of travel plans and things that we were going to do that would have distracted us. um, Right. But we were very focused because there was really nothing else to do. So a, a year, just a little less than a year. That's incredible. Wow. So what is your writing process? Do you, do you get up in the morning, get a cup of tea, a cup of coffee? Like, how does it, what does it look like? I've heard writers talk about a very specific process. And I always marvel at that. I mm. Sometimes I write for 10 hours straight with barely eating anything because I'm on a roll and it's just feeling good. And other times I sort of sit there and nothing happens. So I get up and do something else. Um, I don't have any. I, on the other hand, never miss a meal. (laughs) (laughs) Carolina will seriously not notice that she hasn't eaten. In 10 hours. kind of intensity forth. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, let's talk about how you met. You were professors together at the University of Colorado. Am I right? Yeah. 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 We, met, we first uh, laid eyes on each other in a job interview. I, it was my job interview. Ed had come several years earlier to University of Colorado, Denver, and I was interviewing. And we were not impressed with each Neither other. Wait, wait a minute. Impressed. Was Ed interviewing you? or? Uh, well, he was part of the faculty. faculty. So she got okay. half hour in my office. Got it. And we got to go to a seminar she delivered. And... Neither of us were impressed at all. I was old and boring. <laughs> and he called me chunky. What? I was svelte, I want you to know. <laughs> <laughs> However, my eyesight got better about six months later. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, during a very boring faculty meeting. On a large a, faculty meeting. On a more serious note, um, yes, it's true. We, we were not impressed with each other. And for about... <laughs> three years, we fought, but I don't mean fight like we were talking about earlier about the work. We fought with each other in ways that were just really not good. Um, Mm. Didn't like each other seemingly. Um, Although a therapist pointed out to us later that we had been washing machines for each other. So we had a lot of stuff to work out. Mm. That's an interesting statement. What I really want to say about that is that it after 30 years, I can honestly say that every year. That your whites are white? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get it. What did you say, Chad? That your whites are truly white? Yeah, right. Oh, no. yeah, good linkage. I, <laughs> the washing just, machine. It's just, yeah. It's, yeah, no, it, they got whiter and it got better. And the, the point is that we have grown closer and closer I'd like to say the colors are brighter. I just want to interject. The colors are brighter. (laughs) Yeah, there are two things I would interject with. One is the the, the listener may wonder, you fought for three years once you noticed each other. You fought Mm -hmm. for three years. Why did you stay together? Mm -hmm. This short. He loves to tell this in a long... Well, no, this one's one's short. (laughs) We couldn't keep our hands off each other. That's pretty short, yeah. (laughs) I thought where he was going was we had a number of uh, seers, very wise. I wasn't going there, uh, but that's good. um, People (laughs) who saw way beyond what we can see and said we were meant for each other. And we basically, in the end, said, thy will be done. Um, We were married by a 
Hindu guru, Amaji or Ama, Uh, And we didn't ask her to marry us. And that's the short version of that. Uh, That's a whole other podcast. Oh, we didn't know that she married us until one of her devotees, as we were led away from her, said, she just married you. Mm. It's like, what? And so, but that isn't, that's a different thing. That was not where I was going. I, I really wanted to tell a story about Marlena and why we are still together in this relationship. During the era in which we fought and fought regularly, intensely, um, we had one of these fights and I was going out on the road the next day to teach team building, I think it was, to a, to a healthcare awesome. group. Yeah, that's great. And I am running around like a person uh, with a two-year-old mentality going, she'll be sorry. She'll she'll miss me when I'm gone. You know, and when you get back, she'll be sorry and it'll be... I, I've got that terrible mentality going on. I'm throwing things in a suitcase. And Marlena stops me. And I believe she was at the bottom of a staircase. And I was at the top. And she's nodding her head yes, because we can both remember this moment. And she said, uh, last night, because a whole evening, a night had gone by. Last night, you wanted me to hear something. And I wasn't listening. Mm. what is it you wanted me to hear? I want to know. And that gave me about three seconds worth of, I'll tell you. And then I realized, no, she was vulnerable. She had opened herself up. She was there. She was present. And our relationship changed in that moment. Wow. She was the person who opened that door for us. That's beautiful. That doesn't mean we haven't been around that door many a time since. <laughs> that was the first time. I and like so, to say healing is a journey, not the destination. Yeah. Boy, yeah. isn't that the truth? Yeah. Well, you know, and you have a podcast. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your podcast, Becoming Who You Truly Are? Yeah. Um, We look at becoming who we can truly be from different angles. One season was about um, service and people who are giving so much of themselves and in the process becoming more whole. One of the people that I interviewed was Jonathan Reckford, the CEO of Habitat for Humanity International. And he Our Better Angels is his book, and he's all about, you know, as we serve, we become more truly who we are. Another season was about people who've gone through hardships, much like you have, Jennifer, as a child, and how when you come out the other side of hardships like that, um, often it allows you to more fully open yourself up to becoming who you are. So we're, we're looking at it from different angles. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is a journey of discovery. And Ed and I are on that journey, and we're inviting people on that journey with us. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. And how can people listen to your podcast? Uh, what was the question? How can people listen to your podcast? Oh, um, and you might want to spell well, your name. Although yeah, it'll be in the, the show notes. The website has all of that information, and my website is marlenafiol.com. And if you put that in your show notes, that would be great. Yeah, we'll totally do that. Yeah, it's and, on three platforms, but it's uh, and so on. Inf- I'm the sorry. Information can be found on the website. Information about certainly those podcasts. Information about. 
essays that um, as information about blogs, information about our YouTube channel, information about books. Yeah, you two are prolific. I, it's impressive how much you put out. I'm I'm impressed. Good job. <laughs> well, I just have to thank you, COVID. People. I have to brag. <laughs> I have to brag a little on our teacher. Five years ago, we found Jennifer Thompson, and. What a teacher. <laughs> we knew nothing about any of this stuff when we began. So thank you, Jennifer. And thank well, you for a great website. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you, guys. Yeah, that's that's not necessary. But no, you really have put, you know, so much of your heart and soul into, you know, just this journey of discovering who you who you truly are, um, understanding what forgiveness how beautiful that can be, you know, and the idea of reconciling. And I think every one of us, you know, has been through a situation that, you know, we've had a hard time forgiving. And, you know, forgiveness is, it's better for the person who does the forgiving, I think, than the person who is forgiven. Yes. Absolutely true. We do it for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think hearing of reconciliation, when you hear someone else's story and you think, my God, how could you ever forgive that person? And yet you hear how they did, in fact, forgive that person and come to love themselves maybe a little more in the end. That's the kind of thing we need to hear, right? That's the kind of thing that helps us get through, you know, cross that threshold and enter the door to have that for ourselves as well. Yes, allows us to love ourselves more and I think allows more compassion. Mm -hmm. Indeed. And yeah. empathy, right? Yes. Not me. I bottle that stuff up. I put it on a shelf. I archive it. It's all you label automatically. It. You date it. I like that. <laughs> send us a bottle of that. Right? No, he does not. I want to ask you, do you have any advice for people who are looking to tell their story and maybe think, oh, it's going to be too hard or I can't do this? What I uh, say quite often on podcasts and on our YouTube channel yes. is that I don't wish to ever advise because my path may not be the path that's best for, for you. Mm. Um, I, I think that for me, telling my own story has been a very healing journey. And for me, telling our parents' story has been beyond belief amazing and incredible mm. to get mm. to know them as well as I feel like I know them today. Very few people know their parents as well as Marlena knows hers today. But I will just wow. add to that that yeah. um, I have a, a couple of siblings who are who are not happy about the memoir or the novel because it. Uh, puts out some of our family's dirty laundry. And frankly, that is not what our family ever did. Uh, and so it breaks an unwritten rule in our family. Both of the books do that. And, and so I would never advise that one should do that. I believe in this case, for me, it was the right thing to do. And the novel is something that 
my mother asked yes. me to write the story. She gave me all of her diaries and journals and books and said, please write our story. And wow. they had kept diaries and journals and throughout, throughout their, their lives. lives. Yeah. So I just got goosebumps. Incredible. Wow. And they were very intimate stories. Yeah. yeah. And so part of our novel delves into that intimacy. And I have a brother who has said, this is not okay. Mm-hmm. And we had to make the decision to honor what my mother asked for. Mm-hmm. And and we have done so respe- as respectfully and lovingly as we know how to do. Um, but it was something that we were called to do, frankly, to yeah. the title of it. I want to say one more thing about that for the listener. Um, while we received extensive material from both Marlena's father and mother, that is not the foundation for this book. Records were kept of these people in very public places. Uh, For example, the libraries of the Mennonite Central Committee, the Mennonite Central Committee having sponsored uh, John and Clara Schmidt for a good part of their life economically, uh, they opened their library to us. And the records... Clarified wow. things we did not understand about that journey. Yeah. Huh. That's incredible. And has anyone from, is it called the MCC? Is that right? Yes. yes. Has anyone from that organization read the novel? <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, one of the former heads of MCC. Who was also. Who was in Paraguay at the time that a very significant transition happened in our in parents' lives very difficult transition. He was there at that time. And he's... And he and your parents disagreed with each other on more than one occasion. And Mm -hmm. he's actually in the book Mm -hmm. and he has read the book. Uh, He's still alive and kicking and very, very uh, lucid and smart. And uh, he absolutely loves the story. Oh, that's wonderful. I'll tell you a quick little anecdote. Okay. So we're on a Zoom call with him uh, because he has requested it. Hmm. He has read the memoir and he sent an email and he said, I read your memoir. I need to talk to you because I hear that you are writing a book about John and Clara Schmidt. Hmm. And I thought, okay, I haven't spoken to Edgar Stoes since I was a kid in Paraguay. What is he up to? And so we have a Zoom call. And, he and said, to be clear, before you were practically excommunicated from your yes. church. So yes. I'm just having a problem with Mennonites on Zoom. <laughs> no, I, I think you've got, I think Mennonites have technology, don't they? It's, yes. it's it the Amish on, you don't. It depends on which branch. It depends of on oh, the okay. Mennonites I grew up around um, could have cars, but they couldn't have chrome hmm. on oh, their no, cars. That's interesting. So they had to black oh, out all really the bumpers like and such. the old Mennonites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ted grew up in Iowa for our listener to know. <laughs> yeah. so, so you're on the oh, Zoom call. So we get on the Zoom call. And he is a man who, who doesn't mince words, and he was very direct. And he started out, he says, Marlena, I have hmm. two questions yeah, two. for you. Yes. Hmm. Uh, the first question was, how can you be objective in writing about John and Clara Schmidt? Having read your memoir, you were beaten until you were bloody by this man. How can you objectively tell their story? And my response was, I don't think we, any of us are ever objective. Uh, we're all biased. 
but I lean toward a bias. A positive bias. Of these regarding these two people as with with respect, with regard, with pride, with so much love. I mean, these people um, are heroes. And totally. he said, okay, good. What's, he, What's he the said, second oh, question? <laughs> second question. Why are you writing this book? Huh. And I said, I want to honor those people. And I want to take, we want to bring that story to the wider public. He said, okay, good. He said, I'm on board. <laughs> I'm on and board. Then, and then he read the novel and he mm. loved it and has written a beautiful endorsement of it. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, it, it is impressive to me. Again, I've read both books and I know how hard your life was and, you know, how many hurdles you had to jump over to become the woman you are today, in large part due to your father's decisions. And you you portrayed him in such a beautiful way. I mean, it's raw and it's real, but I never felt like I, I didn't like Dr. John Schmidt. I really rooted for him and Clara, your mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and it never felt like it was written by someone who had an agenda other than literally just telling the story. And it mm-hmm. is, it's a romance. Um, it's, it's about fighting for what we believe in, no matter the cost. Yeah. No matter the cost. Well said. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And his, you know, he was absolutely steadfast in his belief that he was on put on this planet to serve God and the community and make the world a better place. And year he did that. after year, decade after decade. And we all make sacrifices. Absolutely. He yeah. saw his children as being there yeah. to make sacrifices too. It's not that he didn't love his children, but you know, we all have to sacrifice. So do your part. Buck up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have fun with those parasites. <laughs> Again with the parasites. Come on, I knew Chad was going to jump in there. You left the opening. I did. Well, yep. thank you so much for joining us today on The Premise. We really appreciate it. And I look forward to this book called, a novel, being out in the world on November 2nd. And again, Marlena Feel and uh, doctors, Marlena Feel, let me get that right. And Ed O'Connor are the keynote sponsors for the San Diego Writers Festival. That's happening this Saturday, July 31st. It's streaming live. It's available to the public. Go to San Diego com. And to learn more about Marlena Feel and Ed O'Connor, you can visit their website, MarlenaFeel.com. That's M A R L E N as in Nancy A, F-I-O-L.com. It'll also be in the show notes. And you can learn about the novel, calledanovel.com. Listen to Marlena's podcast, Becoming Who You Truly Are. Follow them on YouTube and follow them on social. It's a, it's a beautiful journey they're taking. And I hope you'll join them. This has been another episode of The Premise. Visit us online at thepremisepod.com. Follow us on Twitter at podpremise and subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening.